As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. I'm Ted Berg, joined on Zoom by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton, who is Zooming in from Los Angeles, which is exciting. I think it's technically Pasadena. I'm not sure. Los Angeles is uh, very large uh, and it has a lot of different neighborhoods. Uh, and I am never sure what is actually a Los Angeles neighborhood and what is its own distinctive, uh, distinct geographic entity. So, uh, Southern California. I am, I am Pas- zooming from Southern California. Pasadena, I, I remember always being a favorite of like the Marriott set among, which is most, which is most baseball writers. Um, but I, I, that w- I, I've never actually been to Pasadena. You know, the reason I, I stay here uh, is because when I, the first time I came out to L.A., which was in 2010, short, you know, the year after I graduated from college, uh, we came out here. Uh, one of my friends from college uh, lived out here, then still lives out here. I'm actually going to get lunch with him in a, in a brief period of time. Um, and, and we drove around, like he lived in, I think, Burbank at the time. And we drove around Pasadena and we saw the Rose Bowl and it was a very nice day out. And uh, I really liked the area uh, and I have stayed in Pasadena every trip since. And I have not been back to the Rose Bowl. So it's like four minutes away from where I'm staying. Uh, maybe I'll actually go and visit it sometime this weekend. Like pay homage to the large stadium. I can't say I can't say that it's not worth it because again, I've never been to Pasadena. Pay homage, obviously, to uh, the Giants' victory in Super Bowl Twenty One over the Broncos oh, and Phil Simms' uh, remarkable performance that day. How is being back on the road as a beat writer? Because I know you know this isn't. It's not your first trip of the year. It's your first West Coast trip, obviously. And uh, I know there are still some restrictions in place. You're not in the in the clubhouse every morning. But how has it been? Like, an, is it is it strange? Do you feel like an insider again, or is it still like a sort of a balancing act? It's it's better. It's still not what you want it to be as a reporter. You know, mm-hmm. there it's. One of the frustrating things of the last uh, two years has been it's really difficult to do a story with uh, like several perspectives from players, right? Uh, it's it's hard to you know if I wanted to do a story on uh, like you know an individual player, but what he's doing, 
you know, how he's playing or something, uh, a lot of times you can do that in a day or two in the clubhouse uh, because you can get that player, you can get a coach, you can get the manager, you can get uh, like two other players talking about how important it is that he's playing this way or something like that. Uh, and, you know, the last couple of years, it's been basically like you can get that player and the manager uh, and that's it. Uh, and that's not, and, and everyone else is privy to those conversations so they can write the same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's been nice over the last couple months to get a little bit more of being able to have a, a couple different voices in a story or to have players react to uh, things that are being said more publicly, whether in Zoom or, you know, via Twitter. Uh, like, it was helpful on Wednesday that, you know, Steve Cohen has that tweet and we were able to talk to Hugh Quattlebaum, the hitting coach, that morning uh, in San Francisco mm-hmm. on the field. Uh, and get his reaction. And, you know, since then I've been able to talk to some players uh, about that, you know, myself uh, on the field. Um, you still can't do, like, the larger stories that you want to do in a, a short period of time. Like, there's a story I'm working on uh, that I might write within the next week uh, with a couple different player voices in it. And I've talked to players about it over the course of, like, the last month, you know. And I've gotten, like, four interviews done over, like, three or four weeks on it. Uh, and it's still, like, it's... It's difficult to get everyone you want. The Mets, you know, you can get players after batting practice generally, uh, but the Mets haven't taken batting practice every game. You know, they don't take it during day games. They don't take it on days where they have double headers. They don't take it on days after double headers or day, or tough travel days. So it's, uh, you know, they probably take batting practice about half the time. Uh, so you don't always, you know, the, the pitchers are always out there. The relief pitchers are always throwing. So you, like, you can get a relief pitcher <laughs> any day you want, essentially, uh, but it's harder to get. Uh, hitters that you want. So, you know, I, I came into this road trip with like a single player that I really wanted to talk to, uh, and we've played four games and, and I haven't had a chance to yet. But some of those relievers seem pretty entertaining. Like, I could I could go for like a daily Aaron Loop update. <laughs> I, you know, I had a good conversation with, with Trevor May on Thursday uh, that went for a while. Uh, so, you know, there it, it's, yeah, th- those guys are often in a clubhouse. I, th- I think. Reporters probably compare relievers in baseball to like offensive linemen in football in that they're like they seem to be the most laid back and affable uh, Mm -hmm. on the team. Uh, And, you know, relievers have kind of it sounds mean to say, but like less to do on a daily basis than than a lot of the other players. You know, starters have their own like very strict five day routine. Uh, Relievers, it's like you go out, you play catch, you get loose at at 430 or something for a seven o'clock game. Then you've got some time to sit around if you if you want. so they, they generally are a little bit more accessible uh, in any circumstances than, than the rest of the roster. But, you know, there's only, there's only so many times you can go to, uh, to a reliever for insight on, you know, the offensive woes of this team. But the best quote on the team, almost invariably, is your backup catcher. <laughs> that, is, that is the old cliché. Uh, the backup is that a cliche? I, I found that actually true. It was like if you're like, oh, you need someone to talk about a pitcher. Obviously a pitcher... It, it felt like maybe even that teams are hiring backup catchers as like quasi coaches. And so they have an ability to speak about the game in a way that like you just don't necessarily see elsewhere in the clubhouse. I know when I came, when I got into the industry, uh, you know, the first team that I, I covered in the clubhouse was the 2009 Mets. Uh, so that was, they had Brian Schneider. 
Omir Santos was was uh, became the primary catcher for a little while. And I remember, you mm-hmm. know, Mar- Marty Noble, who was working with MLB.com. I was the, the his intern essentially. Uh, you know, Schneider was was pretty good to talk to after games. And Marty had said, you know, the, like the most important thing in a clubhouse is a good catcher because he can give you kind of the, the mood of the clubhouse. He can tell you what's going on with the, with any pitcher on the staff, probably more candidly than the pitcher himself will tell you or even the pitching coach, uh, and, and is good on, on what's going on offensively. Like he can cover everything. That's why catchers are good managers. Uh, in my experience covering teams since then, I haven't had a ton of really good catchers to talk to. Uh, you know, I've covered some younger catchers. That's a little tougher. Uh, they, they don't feel quite as comfortable uh, breaking down a pitcher. Uh, I remember in, in Boston, Jared Saltalamaki, who was a very nice guy, very polite, very easy to, to, to talk to, very accessible, mm. but wasn't really critical of a pitcher. You know, a guy can go out there and give up seven runs in three innings and he'd say, you know, he's really throwing the ball well. <laughs> uh, really seemed like he should have had better results, uh, which is sometimes true, but not as often as, as Jared seemed to suggest. Um, so, it, it, you know, I think catchers can be really good players to talk to. They can, they have, like, the highest ceiling of a player to talk to, but it doesn't always work out that way. Yeah, you missed the uh, the Mike Nickius to Anthony Wrecker transition among Mets backup catchers, which, uh, from a coverage standpoint, was just always exceptional. Like, yeah. those two guys would, would give you, they'd give you, uh, like, a pointed anecdote uh, in the form of a scene to answer your question rather than just, like, an honest, not, not just an honest answer, but, like, a, a really detailed um, and like dumbed down for your level answer. So here's how you should frame your story. They start, you know, <laughs> right. like yeah. yeah, Anthony Record could write your lead if you want. <laughs> very handsome, very handsomely. Uh, Nickyus too. I mean, they, it was like that was that was them what the Mets were going for at that era. They were like, we want, we need like a very smart, very handsome backup catcher. <laughs> That's, I mean, yeah. if. You, you don't play that much. That, that, that could be an important you thing. Might to as add. well. Yeah, it's eye candy is the new market inefficiency. <laughs> uh, when you travel, this is a, more of a personal question, but because um, the, the life of you are a hardworking person and the life of a beat writer, uh, especially in a, in a more traditional year when you're traveling a ton, is uh, an arduous one, I would have to guess, based on, on how much travel there is. When you're in a place like L.A., do you make a point of eating L.A. food, or is it just like a, I, you eat out of convenience? You, you try. Uh, it's, um, and, and, like, I've been fortunate in, in – I've never traveled, like, the full road schedule the way a lot of beat writers have to. You mm-hmm. know, I think the most road games I've covered in the season is, like, 55 out of 81. Uh, That's still so a lot. It's, it's a it's lot still, of time to be on the road. Still a bunch. Uh, you're on the road just about, you know – a week or two a month, uh, 10 days a month, I think it's, it's what it kind of averages out to. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, the, the first day in a city is always the hardest because you, just, you flew in that morning, and I find that I generally have to choose between whether to nap or to eat lunch. Like, I can't do both, and napping usually wins, and I have, like, a granola mm-hmm. bar for lunch. Um, like, you know, Monday in San Francisco, like, I flew into San Francisco Monday morning, uh, so I was up technically at, like, 1.30 in the morning San Francisco time that day to fly in. Uh, but fortunately, like because of the time difference, I was able to get a nap and have a, a small bite to eat uh, for lunch. I, I did try there to have uh, I had like some Korean takeout, uh, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know if that is necessarily a San Francisco thing. Uh, I mean, like New York has all of these things too, but uh, I, it was right next to the hotel too, so it was it was convenient and it was a little bit different than what I normally eat at home. Uh, I tried not, you know, I used to just eat like a hamburger everywhere I went. Uh, now I try to have like a little bit more uh, diversity in there. 
Uh, in LA, I'm actually meeting up with a couple different friends, so I'm letting them choose good restaurants here for me, so I don't have to do that whole thinking thing. Yeah, I always found one thing I always liked about LA was is the late night accessibility, like that you can find food because a lot of places I think were spoiled as New Yorkers. A lot of places like you just you can't get food in Cleveland after a game, like not not near where you're staying. There's one pizza place, and and they do delivery, and that's it. If you if you want pizza from that place that you can eat and if you don't like you hopefully you have granola bars <laughs> la um there's like all of the the ramen places are open that i always found ramen was my move especially uh, i typically stayed anytime doing dodgers postseason stuff i would always stay in the downtown la uh which is right near little tokyo and filled with ramen options which would be my recommendation the point i was going to make was just that like uh if you're doing if you're traveling and covering it and traveling not for for vacation, obviously, but for work and dealing with the baseball schedule, which is long, uh, a a city's food culture um, becomes valuable, not necessarily for its like peaks, but I think for its like uh, it's the the breadth of availability. And also like, does this place like you mentioned Korean takeout, like a city like San Francisco has like tons of good takeout options and good takeout options becomes like the most valuable thing. Cause like, you're never going to sit down for a meal. Yeah. And like, I, you know, I tried to, uh, when I, when I go to a city, like I try to do something cultural in that city. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes it's, it's like, like in, in San Francisco on Tuesday, I went for a, a very long walk for getting the hilliness. Uh, did we talk about that on the last podcast? We might've, uh, I think we talked about it before it, I think on via text message before <laughs> That I, I, uh, I had forgotten that, like, to get from where I was staying uh, to Fisherman's Wharf in that area, I had to basically summit the city of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was just, like, nice to experience, like, 70-degree summer weather uh, in San Francisco the way we have not had in New York all summer. Um, and, you know, I tried to find, like, good museums. I, I mean, I haven't been to a museum this year because the circumstances are different, but find good museums or bookstores. I went to a great bookstore in San Francisco, City Lights, and bought myself a couple of books. Uh, I try to do something that that like I wouldn't do on a Tuesday when I'm in my apartment in Queens before heading to a game, like to get some better experience out of it. But I do find that I like I eat relatively I eat more on the road most of the time outside of the first day, uh, and I eat less healthy. Like I just because you're eating, you know, you're not making yourself something nice with groceries at home for lunch. You're you're having a hamburger or Korean takeout uh, after a game, uh, which was delicious, but probably not the best for my for my body yeah i mean and again like i never traveled enough that i had to like it would be like okay well i'm gonna travel for the month of october i'm just gonna eat like crap like i'm just resigned to that and then the baseball season will be over and i can i can get back to the gym or whatever but i find it admirable that you're trying to do cultural things while also trying to cover a new york mets team that we haven't really discussed yet and uh, has played only one game since we last spoke on Wednesday. That game, and uh, this may shock you, was a four-one uh, a four-one loss in which the offense didn't really arrive. Yeah, you know, the, this was the game in the series against the Dodgers that you, you might have felt good about going in. Uh, you were facing a bullpen game, and really, a I think. Technically, you would call it a second straight bullpen game against L.A., although Mitch White threw, I think, seven and a third innings in the first bullpen game for the Dodgers, which I don't think counts as a bullpen game. Uh, you, you know, it, it was the bullpen game, and then it was, 
Walker Bueller, who is one of the like main contenders for the Cy Young in the National League this year. Max Scherzer, who I believe has won three Cy Youngs, and David Price, who has won one and been a serious contender for several others. Uh, so those were those were going to be the three toughest games, probably in the, in the order it goes: Bueller, Scherzer, Price. Uh, and then you thought Thursday, coming off a really nice win Wednesday, you've got Taiwan Walker, who's pitched better the last few. He is your all-star starter uh, and had, had taken no hitter into the seventh against this team last week. Uh, and he pitched, I think, you know, I don't, I don't think the line was a fair evaluation of Walker on Thursday. Uh, you just saw the way, like, the Dodgers took advantage of their relatively rare scoring opportunities against him in a way that the Mets just haven't. Like, they had that second and third no-out situation in the second inning, and they get back-to-back RBI ground outs, which, like, that's 0 for 2 with runners in scoring position in the box score. Uh, but that's still getting both runs in. You know, the Mets are a team that, like, when they've got a runner in scoring position, they get a hit, and he doesn't score, it seems. So uh, it's just the the way they took advantage situationally of a couple different things. They get, you know, the two more runs in, in the, I think it was the fifth inning, uh, when Billy McKinney gets the two-out double, and then he gets driven in by a two-out a two RBI double just to make it three-to-one. Then he gets driven in by Trey Turner with a two-out RBI single. You know, two-out hits with runners in scoring position. Those are the things Walker has not given up as much this year uh, and has been really good in those situations. Uh, so that was that was kind of a backbreaker at that point in the game. And then they just, you know, it's, it's tough when you're facing a bullpen uh, and you're facing a different pitcher each time up as an offense. Uh, but this wasn't like... You know, I, I know the Dodgers have pitchers who have, who have done very well in the bullpen. This was not necessarily a murderer's row of their relievers. You didn't see Kenley Jansen in this game. Uh, you saw, you know, Evan Phillips for the longest period of time, uh, a guy who I, I believe the Orioles cast off uh, not too long ago. Uh, so it, it seemed like this was a game that, that the Mets could have taken advantage of offensively and built on what they did in the final innings on Wednesday. But instead, it's they faced 16 pitchers in the last two days. They've only scored runs against three of them. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You mentioned the the pitchers for the Dodgers. The Mets will send Carlos Carrasco, Rich Hill, and then Stroman on Sunday. So I think you can feel optimistic about the Stroman David Price matchup if you if you forget about the teams that they both play for. Otherwise, and it's baseball, so maybe the Mets take two out of three. Maybe they sweep the the rest of the series. Uh, you still you don't love whether when I mean, we've talked about it at length. This is a, a hard, hard stretch of the season for them at a time when they were playing as poorly as they have at any point this year. Um, it's is am I am I crazy to be looking at this? And I'm I'm not throwing in the towel for the Mets. Like a lot can change. A lot has changed with their position in the standings in the last two weeks. There's no way it can't flip around the other way 
uh, am I wrong to have one eye on the off season at this point? I mean, I, I think fans, even in even in like positive circumstances, when the Mets were were four up in the division but not playing their best ball, uh, I think there was a, a segment of the fan base that had its eyes on the off season. Uh, that's that's the most intriguing part of of following baseball is seeing what personnel changes the team's going to make, especially a team. Uh, where we we know as little as we do about the Mets, about how they're going to be run in the offseason, like we talked about last time. Uh, and they're at an intriguing point where they have this position player core of guys who were all really good, who were all, uh, to varying degrees, good and above average in 2019 and 2020. You know, from Pete Alonso being awesome in, in 2019 and, and hitting 53 home runs, uh, to Dominic Smith and Michael Conforto being like down ballot MVP candidates uh, in 2020 and having o- OPSs over 900, uh, to all of them in 2020 basically taking a step back. You know, Alonzo has been uh, has been sorry, all of them in 2021 taking a step back. Uh, Alonzo has been has been good this season. Nimmo uh, has been good this season, although he got hurt. JD Davis has been has been pretty good, although he got hurt. Uh, so I think one of the interesting things to look at with the Mets roster is like what those guys have done since the start of 2020 uh, because they're, you know, considering some of the injuries, those guys are about at a season's worth of plate appearances now. It's been, what, they've, they've played 100, 181 games since the start of 2020. Uh, but, you know, it's I, I just looked up, like, Dominic Smith. Like, since the start of 2020, is what is his OPS plus, right? Because it was so good last year and it's it's below average this year. Uh, and it's 111, you know, his, his OPS uh, is 775, he's a 268, 329, 446 guy in 635 plate appearances, and that is, like, that feels like the fairest evaluation of him over the last span than, like, the high of 2020 versus the low of this year. If you had said at the start of 2020, uh, okay, over the next 180 games, Dom Smith's going to give you a 111 OPS plus, that would sound about right, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know... Th- Pete Alonso's at 124 in that span. Brandon Nimmo's at 129, although he's got only 484 plate appearances because of some injuries. Uh, you know, Conforto's at 119. That's below his career track record. So even though he had the great 2020, uh, 2021's dragged that down. Uh, you know, Jeff McNeil's at 106, which is lower than than it had been before. I think you know I wrote about him Thursday night into Friday morning, and just how just doesn't look right offensively, and how the what the Mets are trying to kind of tinker with his approach is, is a proxy for how they're trying to tinker with a lot of guys in, in ways that don't change fundamentally who they are as a hitter, but try to, to unlock something a little bit more in them and how delicate that is to do with guys who've had success uh, and not that long ago. It sounds like uh, when we talk about this year, because it, when, when I think about the offseason, which is what I was trying to get to, is like there's this, when it, you get so frustrated with the team, there's this instinct to say like okay no this isn't going to work like this this core of players is not championship caliber and it's time to blow it all up like see what you can get for dom smith and see what you can get for uh jeff mcneil and maybe alonzo and and you know give uh, conforto the qualifying offer and if he walks let him walk and you know like just just move on i and and i don't think that's the right approach but i think that um a big component of that is that uh they haven't i mean they have a sizable investment left in in Jacob deGrom they have a giant investment in Francisco Lindor they've got a decent size investment in in James McCann like they have they have money committed out I mean especially to Lindor that it seems like you're not at a 
point where you're ready to do that and then i wonder is that foolish like is it foolish to think that way when you can just cut the cord and and start over yeah i mean like there have been people in the comments on my stories suggesting that the mets tank and rebuild uh and that would not i don't i don't see that as a viable option at all i'm also it's just also very strange to me uh how much fans want their team to do that in any given point in time oh i get uh, it I, I, I mean, like, I don't think, I, I don't know, I've never... How can you not, I'm sorry, how, you've been watching this team, how can you not have understand the instinct to be like, just get rid of everybody? <laughs> I, get, I, look, I can understand the instinct, but I can't understand it to uh, people who want, like, let's just, let's just be terrible for four years, you know? Right. Like, do you, watch the Orioles Except that for, it's the way, to, it's the way to, it's, I mean, it's, and I don't think it's really the way to win anymore, because I think it's, it's too well known too many teams are doing it yeah um but but it did work right like it definitely worked for the astros it's not what the dodgers went how the dodgers went around about becoming a dynasty but um it was a an effective method at one point yeah it it worked for the astros and it worked for the cubs if the astros didn't cheat we don't know if it works if the cubs lose one you know the cubs were down 3-1 in the world series uh Mm -hmm. to a team that they weren't better than that they were that they were better than sorry that they shouldn't have been down to uh and uh, they they almost you know if they hadn't won that 2016 World Series how would we feel about tanking like you know you look at uh, I, I think it's interesting in another sport in in the NBA like the Oklahoma City Thunder had top five picks in three consecutive years and drafted three NBA MVPs and didn't win um, right so it's I know I know that's a different sport uh, that's actually one where it would seem easier to to tank for just a couple of guys and 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 rise up. Uh, you know, you've got to do a lot of things to make that process work. Uh, and, and certainly Houston and Chicago, when they went into uh, their slumbers, uh, they were in much worse situations talent-wise at the major league level uh, and even, I think, a bit at the minor league level than where the Mets are now. So I, I do not advocate the Mets tanking. I don't know what you, how you could do that successfully. Uh, too many of their players uh, are making too much money or are too close to making money to bring back tons of minor league talent the way you would want to uh, i do think you know i'm just rattling off like ops pluses of guys over the last two years one of the concerns you would have if you were the mets are that two of the guys you have bigger investments in in mccann and lindor have had below average uh, offensive production now since the start of 2020 that you know lindor's at 97 mccann at 96 uh and you know the the other guys you mentioned were all above 100 they're maybe less above 100 than you expected but they're they're they were all above it uh, so the guys you are most invested in are the guys who have had the roughest offensive performance uh, over the last two years or, or whose bad 2021s have affected them the most. So in go on. No, no, I, I was kind of I was I said so with no idea of where I was going with that. So you, you, you came in at the right time. Uh, uh, in Lindor's case, it does sound like he may be able to improve his stats a little bit sooner than than at least I expected. What's the latest on the, the injury situations here? Yeah, so he was working out with Javi Baez on the middle infield on Thursday afternoon before the game, uh, having a lot of fun with it. Uh, and. Uh, the the hope is that I think Baez is eligible to come off the the injured list on Sunday. Uh, maybe he does come off that day, but uh, should be back shortly after that, if not on Sunday. You know, for that series against the Giants that starts Tuesday, Lindor could be back. Uh, you know, he's he's gone through his his ten days. He's eligible to come off whenever, uh, and he could be back. Uh, you know, as soon as probably that Tuesday against San Francisco. I'm not sure that they would 
Uh, I'm not sure that he's ready for that just yet. He's he's taken swings, uh, I think, right-handed twice off of live pitching and left-handed once. They probably want him to do that again uh, uh, a bit before he, he comes back. Uh, and they've still talked about the possibility of a rehab assignment actually for both guys. Uh, they haven't ruled it out for both guys. Um, but They're running out of runway there, though, right? Doesn't the minor league season end at, like in a week and a half? Uh, no, it, it goes a little deeper this year because oh. it, it got the late start. So it goes into uh, oh, nice. like mid-September, even September 20th. Um, oh, that's convenient. Which is also convenient when you think about Jacob deGrom needing uh, some mm-hmm. runway there. Um, so, you know, like you will have some time to see what this offense looks like with its healthy pieces back again, knock on wood. You know, those guys, we said that in early July, and then, then Lindor went out, uh, you know, they haven't. They had basically that one stretch against. I feel like it was really just the series in Cincinnati where the offense looked really good, uh, and outside of that, it hasn't at any point this year. Uh, so, but it looks really good in that series. <laughs> but you'll get uh, that you was know, fun. You, you hope to get five and a half weeks of seeing what this lineup looks like with with those guys in, and hopefully no one else gets hurt over that stretch, uh, and see you know with. I don't know what the everyday lineup will look like where McNeil fits in uh, if Baez and Lindor are your middle infield. Uh, maybe get a, a sense for how those pieces fit together uh, if you want to think about re-signing Baez or even if Baez is, is uh, a stand-in in your mind for the returning Robinson Cano next year. Uh, that's a way to get the fan oh base, base riled, right? Like, let's let's hand the, the second base job to Robinson Cano in 2022. Uh, but just thinking about, like, you watch the Giants, you watch the Dodgers, and you see... Like not, they don't have like not everyone is a regular everyday player. They don't have a set lineup of eight guys that they run out there every day. Uh, they've got strong benches. They're able to mix and match really well. Uh, they they take advantage of each guy's strengths. It's, the Mets wanted to do that this year. It's been harder for them to do it because guys haven't played to their strengths. Like J.D. Davis is having a good year, but it's it's against right-handed pitching, not left-handed pitching. Uh, so you know you might say when Baez comes back, well, why don't you platoon McNeil and Davis? But that you know Davis has the reverse splits. Same with Dominic Smith. You know Kevin Pillar has not hit lefties really at all this year compared to what he'd done in previous years. So you can't kind of work him into the mix the way you might think otherwise. Uh, so that's part of it. But I, I do think you know a lot of times you, you think as a fan like. Well, okay, J.D. Davis is not going to be our regular third base. I don't want to be the regular third baseman next year. He doesn't have a defensive fit. Trade him. See what you can get. Trade trade him for a reliever. You know, everyone wants to trade guys for a reliever or a prospect. Uh, and uh, I think it's fine to have J.D. Davis as your tenth player. Like, you know, a guy who mm-hmm. comes off the bench, who starts against lefties, uh, who get who who starts sixty games instead of one hundred and thirty. Uh, and I, you know, to have good players like that, he's cost controlled. Uh, he doesn't cost a ton of money to do that. Uh, that's valuable. Uh, you can think about, you know, Smith in the same way. Uh, it's going to be really one of the bigger issues the Mets are going to face in the offseason. The same one they faced last year. They're not going to know about a designated hitter all offseason long. Uh, that's that's going to be part of the new CBA. The new CBA is going to be a contentious issue the entire winter. So we're going to talk about we don't know where the luxury tax threshold is going to be, and we don't know if there's going to be a designated hitter in the National League. And those are two issues that will uh, affect the Mets more than most teams. Uh, so that that's going to be uh, a frustrating thing for them to deal with, uh, and they're going to have to operate uh, in kind of a, a cloud about those things, and that's going to change maybe how they, you know, that changed last year how aggressively they went after someone like George Springer or uh, some other center field options, uh, and we'll see if that if they change their tune on that this winter facing the same circumstances. 
We have a question via email from Adam. If you have a question, please do email asktedberg at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter. I'm at OGTedberg. Tim is at Tim Britton. Adam wants to know, this is a layup. It's not going to take us very long. Do you think, unless, unless you have a hot take here that you're welcome to share, but he wants to know, do you think Gary Cohen and Howie Rose will join Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy as Frick Award recipients? We haven't always had great teams, but we have the best announcers. Uh, I, I believe... Gary Cohen has already been a finalist for the Frick Award, which is the, the Hall of Fame Award honoring broadcasters. Uh, so I would I would think that he would be a, a, a pretty serious candidate for that moving forward. I know they cycle through like what era broadcasters they consider on a, a mm-hmm. regular basis. So, you know, he, he was a candidate a couple years ago and he wasn't the year after because they were talking about broadcasters earlier in the sports history. Uh, I think uh, Rose would probably also be a candidate down the road i think probably because cohen's gotten there first he would go he would, he would get the shot first uh it would be I, I don't know if they've ever had a situation where like two of the three finalists were people who overlap calling games for the same team uh, i think they you know as in the bbwaa we have a similar award for for writers and there is always the thought like you know you're not going to get your market uh have a writer go in in like consecutive years or something you're gonna you know you you aim to get one guy in then you wait a couple years and then you aim to get uh, another person in or something like that uh so uh, i i don't know exactly how the frick award goes but i i would expect it would surprise me at this point if if gary cohen did not get in uh and i would i would it would also surprise me if howie rose didn't become at least a serious candidate at at one point that they're both so very good at what they do yeah, I think, you know, I don't know when it would happen, but I have to assume if they stay in their jobs, it seems like uh, longevity, and, and this is not a to knock it, but longevity is a big part of it, because if you have a lot of longevity as a broadcaster, it means you're doing a really good job and you become like sort of a beloved part of the team's fan experience. Certainly seems like Gary Cohen and, and Howie Rose are, are that for Mets fans, and it certainly seems like they're not going anywhere. So uh, I would expect that, you know, maybe not, maybe it's 20 years from now, but eventually they'll both be in. Yeah, I mean, it, it has been uh, such uh, an enjoyable part of the experience growing up as a Mets fan to have, you know, it, you've had, you know Mets fans have had Gary, Gary Cohen, Keith Hernandez, Ron Darling on TV for the last uh, 16 years. Uh, you've had Howie Rose on the radio uh, for that stretch of time. And uh, he's, he's had, you know, he's cycled through a couple different uh, partners, but the They've generally been been good. Um, the radio has been a, a really good broadcast over that time, mm-hmm. uh, and even before that, you, you know, you had Gary Thorne, who, who's been back this year a little bit. Uh, you had uh, Tim McCarver, who I think really set the standard kind of for a player going into the booth uh, and uh, being able to handle play by play and analysis and being critical of the teams uh, that he broadcast for. It's it's interesting to me, like you know. When McCarver was reaching the end of his time at Fox, there was a lot of talk about, you know, fans never liked the national broadcasters, uh, and people wanted Fox to move on from McCarver, uh, and I think he's been really difficult to replace. I don't think they've been, you know, I think John Smoltz is is pretty good, but uh, has not been quite as good. I mean, Smoltz Smoltz is good Uh, at the John Smoltz is is the guy who makes me yearn for Tim McCarver. Yes. Yeah, I I mean, uh, Smoltz I thought was really good. At the start, uh, I think you know it's been tougher because the game has changed so much since you know he, he didn't. He retired, I don't care that yeah. he retired not he, that long ago. He retired what in '08 or something, and the game is completely different than it was when he played, and he has not adapted to that. So when he was calling, games, well, it's like, not that it's, but it's not that not the lack of it. Uh, it's not the lack of adaptation that gets me. It's the 
apparent disdain for the fact that the game does change. Yes. Uh, you know, so I thought call, when he was calling games in, in 2014 or so, uh, before a lot of those changes had taken place, I thought it was, you know, that was pretty good. You know, this, right before Rajay Davis's home run off of Raldis Chapman, he was like, the only place he can get to the ball is down and in on a slider. That's where he's looking. Yeah. Oh, and he knows his the, stuff. Yeah. Uh, but you would like, you know, it was, I, I saw someone on Twitter contrast the way like uh, the Olympic track and field was broadcast. You know, they had, there was that one, I think it was the... Uh, 400 meter hurdles where, where both guys broke the world record and it was like one of the great Olympic races of all time uh, and the enthusiasm of the broadcasters watching that was so transparent even to people who don't really know the sport that well uh, that you watch a baseball game and you just don't get that to the same extent uh, on a national broadcast uh, and it's it's one thing that really I think hinders the sport uh, moving forward uh, but so to go back to the original point, the Mets had Tim McCarver for a long time. They had Ralph Kiner. They had all of these great broadcasters going back to Lindsey Nelson and, and Bob Murphy and Ralph to start. So uh, it's 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 been one of the pleasures of being a, a Mets fan growing up and to cover the team even now uh, when you throw the game on MLB TV or the radio uh, to hear really good uh, broadcasting night, night after night. And that's to say nothing of the podcasts. Not to, uh, so many good podcasts. Uh, I don't listen to any of them. Not not even this one. You know who can? <laughs> but no. uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of content out there. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, you can have. Uh, there are so many different ways to follow this team in depth uh, and to the the level of depth that you want to. Uh, I'm always impressed by just how much you know. I think fans today know so much more about the sport than I did growing up as a fan uh, than than most people did. Uh, not that long ago, so it's it, it always uh, you know I see some of the the level of analysis and comments that we have on our stories. You know sometimes they are the trade everyone everyone sucks uh, variety, which is understandable, uh, and then other times they're like you know relatively deep breakdowns of, of things going on with individual players or the team, uh, and those are things that like I was not thinking of or or the kind of analysis I was definitely not doing uh, when watching the the '99 Mets. And it all just serves to make me more miserable. Tim, we will talk next week about how the Mets play these upcoming days in Los Angeles. I'm going to go see the Rose Bowl. Adios. Peace.